One and all, welcome to a winter edition of Nick's Nonfiction here with your Sherpa, Nick Munez. That's right, this one goes out to the Southern Hemisphere homies. <laughs> Every June, we take an expedition. John Krakauer is back for the hour with Into Thin Air. Skin of the teeth survival situation on the top of Mount Everest, 29,029 feet high. This is one of the best-selling nonfiction books of all time. He's pushing three million copies. He could build his own human-sized drone to fly him in the top with those earnings. They turned this into a Hollywood blockbuster. It's called Everest. Came out in 2014. Jake Gyllenhaal, bunch of other handsome Americans playing British guys. Today's story took place in 1996. Still the adventurous age. You had some synthetic fibers from REI. It's not the space helmets people are walking to the top with today. A quarter of the people still died and Krakauer's accident is still the deadliest season on the mountain. Really bad storms. It's the best adventure tale we have. The hero hall is an Ernest Shackleton level leader. You're gonna get the history of the Himalayas I'll see if I could stop myself from alliterating somehow. You guys know I'm a uh, big ideas man. I couldn't get financing for my latest gem. I was trying to open up a pub on the top of Mount Everest. Investors felt the bar was set a little bit too high. I'm telling you, I'm a Sherpa myself living at 7,000 feet every night before bed. I do a little hijacking. <laughs> You know they had to kick a lady off the summit one season? She bought her vibrator to the top and she wouldn't stop singing. I'll be coming around the mountain till we go. That's right. It's an egregious intro. <laughs> We're talking about a three-sided pyramid made of jagged rock and ice. <laughs> Down at the base camp there are parties. We're stopping at the bazaar along the way. The Americans, we have to go through Nepal whereas the Tibetan side is controlled by the Chinese, and that is the real test of manlyhood to get to the top. Today's story takes place on the eastern side of the mountain. Humans shouldn't even be able to climb this thing. You're in the death zone. You gotta be on oxygen. Make sure you guys are liked and subscribed before the About the Author. We are gonna throw it over to a word from our sponsors. About the author, John Krakauer, his second appearance, we have one more of his books annotated to complete the trilogy eventually. He was born in 1954, Massachusetts for the first two years of his life, moved to Oregon where he was mostly raised, climbing more than just monkey bars. He went to Hampshire College and graduated in 1976, married four years later, moves with his wife to Washington, spent three weeks alone in Alaska 
right before he got married. That's when he climbed the devil's thumb. We had that story in Into the Wild. He almost burnt his own tent down for a joint. Up on Mount Everest, you can't even light a lighter. The air is too thin. He's living in Washington, did a couple climbs down in Patagonia. Look up, or it'll be on the YouTube, En el Andes, El Cerro Torre. It's a straight-up vertical rock. He has all the equipment, a lot of the experience. I, as your host, we've already done crack hour. I've climbed a 14er here, Beerstad. People drink beers on the top, and your blood is thin. It goes to your head real quick. I took a little detour on the G-Pen, and I thought I was about to wingsuit squirrel jump my way back down. The way down is when most people get hurt. Crack Hour has the experience. You're going to meet Beck, the American Texan, who pays for the most hype beast gear, and he thinks that's what's going to keep him alive. There's those pay-to-play people even up on the mountain <laughs> it's not the altitude it's your attitude at a certain point you gotta have an indomitable will this is so many men's dream to be at the highest summit crack hour has done it Fourteen thousand feet that's the highest we have in the continental u.s i haven't done mount elbert yet gotta check that out long's peak is the next on my list Mount McKinley up in Alaska is the only American that breaks 20,000 feet. Then Everest, 29,000. Completely different scale. Remember when you would look at the globe as a kid, you'd spin to the Himalayas, nearly hit yourself in the face? What if a uh, blind guy tried to read the Himalayas on the globe? He would tell you to turn the volume down. It's a topological anomaly. 1997. Crack Hour dropped this book, considered for a Pulitzer Prize, the closest he ever got a year prior was Into the Wild. And 1992, sorry we go backwards, is Iger Dreams. That's about all of the most legendary mountain men. So maybe we do a four-peat for Crack Hour. This is a really good story. If it's half as good, I'll buy two copies. 2003 Crack Hour published Under the Banner of Heaven bestseller that's going to be our next one about mormon abuse he's investigative he's psychoanalyzing all these people on the mountain the dying but determined that's the yin to the yang for the pay to play this guy has lung cancer on the mountain in this story and he's just climbing it for the elementary school kids now you know a thing or two about crack hour (laughs) eight chapters we're going to be in and out chapter one is called the seat of god Damn, this is normally when I would take a sip of coffee. I already feel jacked up because I haven't seen Joe in a week. No caffeine in the veins. Maybe next week we experiment with it as a performance enhancer. The seed of God, or as the locals call it, Jamalungma. She lays 29,029 feet above sea level what was an impossible risk to man until the right tools were invented. You know, Crack Hour, he's got to start us in the middle of the apex, literally the top of the story arc. <laughs> we'll come back to the summit later. He's going, I'm standing there one foot in China, one foot in Nepal, still trying to scrape some ice off of my air mask. I was expecting to have an epiphany here for a moment, being the tallest man on earth. But it was a nice sight for about five minutes until he started hauling ass back down. He hadn't slept in 57 hours. He was on minimal food. He had one packet of ramen and was swallowing whole peanut M&Ms. 
above 25,000 feet, you are just decaying. Snapped a couple pictures. Five minutes is more than enough on the roof of the world. You're at the cruising altitude of a 747. You can look over and wave to a kid on his iPad picking his boogers. <laughs> you just accomplish the highest feat of humanity. Turns to the southeast ridge, notices a storm front coming in. He's saying the Sherpas, you pay them to bring you up the mountain, but it is on you to get yourself back down. Giant traffic jam at the Hillary Step. Big ice wall juts out, requires technique. You gotta belay yourself up. Another bad sign. There's too many people up there. And their oxygen stow got stolen by one of the other teams. Real bad picture. John Krakauer actually leaving us hanging on the edge of a cliff. (laughs) Rest of the chapter, he goes into the history of Mount Everest. What do they have living in the Taj Mahal? The Dalai Lama is that the president of India. In 1900, he sent out a trigonometric surveyor. The guy ran all the way from Calcutta up to the border. He used the age-old Pythagorean theorem, and he was able to estimate the peak of Everest at 29,002 feet. He is 27 feet off with no laser technology. What are those construction guys always doing with those tripods? They say they're checking to see if the road is level. (laughs) Let's get one of these people to measure the pyramids in Antarctica. It was always legend in India and the highland Himalayan people. They gave it that name, Jamalungma, the seat of God. Nobody's ever made it to the top. We learned in the Shackleton stories, 1909, North Pole got hit, 1911, South Pole. This is the heroic age, and Everest is still yet to be topped. 1921, Nepal opened its borders to foreigners, and they were, of course, trying to get a cut from people. And the first guys with low enough hanging balls were three British fellows. Edward Feliz Norton was the most notable of the three. He made it 900 feet from the summit before suffering from snow blindness. Man, you low crawl your way to the top at that point. You turn around 900 feet. The only way to not go blind forever is to rapidly descend. A couple guys tried a year later, a team of three, all three of them died. So for 28 years then, nobody even comes close to trying to get up this thing. Hillary, Tenzing, and one other man in 1953 finally made it to the summit. The Queen's putting it into the national paper. In 1963... Tom Horbein was the first American up at top, some 36-year-old Oregon professor, and he took the West Ridge, which is a cakewalk. What are you doing this thing for? Are you just trying to see what it's like at the top of the world? If you're really going to challenge yourself, then go to the Chinese side. It's just straight jagged rock. It looks like there's some winged demons, some pterodactyls living on that side. I don't know why they just go in the middle, that what eastern... Anyway, in 1953, Hillary and Tenzing did leave some of the infrastructure up at what would become Camp 3. Takes the story back to Krakauer living in Oregon. He's making $6,000 a year doing here and there articles. In the mid-1980s, he's keeping up to date on what's happening in the Himalayas. It's been summited a hundred times on the easy route. Michael Kennedy in the 80s was also the first climber to hit the seven summits. 
K2, the second highest, is a mile away. They don't call it K3. It's got another name. It's another few miles away. Um, Kilimanjaro is on the Seven Summits. I'm down in Patagonia as well. At this time, Nepal, 1980s, they're still pricing out to the penny every American's dollar they can get in there. And Hall, our hero for the day, is the British entrepreneur, one of the first guys to start making money, turn it into a business. And then Fisher is the fun one, the American. He says, if you can't summit yourself, you shouldn't even be on the mountain. Don't put other people in danger. Real personal responsibility attitude of the American. Hall is going to wind up saving lives. Krakauer gets the opportunity for Outside Magazine to climb with Adventure Correspondence Hall's group. So they fly him out, all expenses paid. 1996. He's 15 pounds heavier than he could be. He's basically in his climbing prime at 40 years old. It's going to bring us to Chapter 2, Base Camp. He's flying Thailand Air, weaving in and out of the Himalayas in an Airbus. From their plane, he could see the summit. He sees Chajunga, which is the third highest. That one's 28,000 feet. World's fifth highest peak is also there. His palms are getting clammy, realizing, no, I'm going to have to climb up to this height 40 minutes later. He's welcomed on the ground by his Sherpa. He's meeting with his partners at the Garda Hotel. This is where you meet Beck, and he's just making fun of everybody. He draws a lot of attention. He didn't even tell his wife that he was climbing Mount Everest. He says when he's at home later on, I get a real black cloud what it feels like when I'm at home that I can't shake. There's a higher resonance when I'm fighting for my life every day on the mountain. Getting a real inside look at some of these people. There was Doug, who Beck made fun of a ton. He's like, what, a mailman on the mountain? What am I looking at here? I go to the gym six days a <laughs> Beck, Doug, mailman? Have you ever seen a UPS guy's calves? <laughs> he could jump to the top in one vertical. Doug is suffering from some sort of lung things. He's 50 years old. However, the elementary school in his town, he's trying to make a point for them. I'm some schmuck, and I'm going to make it climb the highest mountain, <laughs> whereas this other guy, very contrast. There's also this girl, Yasuko, who is going to be the first Japanese lady to climb the Seven Summits, and she's in the group as well. Also at the Garda Hotel, they are seeing who they're going to be going against is a Japanese team, the IMAX team, and a couple other Brits were on the west side at the time. It's still a ton of traffic, and I'll have pictures today of what it looks like. It's like the stairway to heaven. It's like a COVID vaccination, literally a mile. You're in the March of the Penguins when you go, I knew a kid from the rich side of town. He said he climbed up, it cost 20k per head, and he wore what was like a space helmet. <laughs> it's a totally different game nowadays. Highest height? Why don't you go down to the Marianas Trench? You know what's harder than climbing Mount Everest? Climbing it and never mentioning it to another person. <laughs> Hall used to have this partner, Ball, and they started the business together, bringing people up to seven summits, found they could make the most money on Everest. 1993, his partner Ball dies from swelling of the balls, I wish, swelling of the brain, pulmonary something. Hall and Ball took 39 climbers to the summit between 1990 and 1995. 
flew many more people out. It's just that when you're at Camp 3, you can't always make the sprint to the summit. The weather's usually bad. He's making as much as $65,000 a head on people like Beck. Hollis looked at as one of the pioneers still, like his partner died, and then there's just this ragtag American fisher. (laughs) There was also a man, John Taze, who summited three times, and that was one of his competing Sherpas, until he fell into a crevice. Legit, it's only a matter of time. Like Beck, some people are just looking for the thing that could potentially kill them. A good challenge. The first day of hiking, they're stripped down to shorts and a t-shirt. And this is when the adventure starts. They're out of the airport and the they're getting some elevation now. Seven, nine thousand feet. They're hiking along yaks, hanging suspended bridges with prayer flags and raging rapids below. They stop at next to the Namchi Bazaar, 11,000 feet above sea level. It's the perfect adventure story. You gotta run around to an open air market where there's chickens pooping. They stop for some lemon tea, hear from local climbers who all are missing a toe, know a family member who died trying to climb it. There's plenty of drunk Americans looking for Coca Cola and burgers. You know, John Cracker is just going, hey, there's more to see than the mountain here. Learning from the locals, you've really got to get used to Camp 3. They spend around four weeks from airport until they go for the summit, getting used to the higher elevations. In the first year I was here in Colorado, I went to the History of Colorado Museum at least three times, read about the Utes and the Arafo, and they lived at High Rockies, 9,000 feet. Nine's above the tree line. They're just flexing on all the roaming armies coming through. When you're above 9,000, the air is tasteably thin. The sky has got this weird, dark, bluish color. I'll say, at the 14,000 feet I have been, I've never seen any curvature. (laughs) They get to above 15,000, above the bazaar. His tent mate, Crack Hours tent mate, Andy, is some teacher. And he's like throwing up. He's thinking this guy isn't going to be able to summit which he doesn't. We don't need to waste time on that character. He turns around on the last day. Around 15,000 annual trekkers would come through at the time, and that was stimulating that entire local economy. The Sherpas, they don't want to assimilate. At the same time, they don't want to be turned into some weird anthropological site. So there's a good balance of the kids running around in Chicago Bulls jerseys. Couple days after leaving that bazaar, they're getting towards 12,000 feet of elevation and they finally see Mount Everest. Very intimidating. The next 30 minutes of the hike are dead silent. People are now toe to toe with the thing that they saw on the plane. Your perception is so off as well when you are at ground level looking at these things. Yeah, it's a 30,000 foot summit, but a 15er in front of it could still block it out like you think mathematics you'd just be able to see above it these things will mess with your head they're getting towards the glaciers now which is as far as the yaks will make it because you are climbing up ladders and this will be what gets them to base camp john saw for the first time someone fall into a crevice here it's a pretty regular occurrence. You've seen those creepy videos on YouTube. Snowboarders falling into tree wells or straight up crevices. You don't want to get buried. They were able to throw a rope down to this guy here. You see the Sherpas. They'll do like 
a stack of 10 lawn chairs on their head and then put a injured American on top of that. They are human yaks. They're telling stories now, ghost stories. Some people who tried to summit before at 22 to 25,000 feet on the route they're taking is an ice slope known as Lost Face, L-H-O-S-T. They call it Loti Kami. A girl once was trying to traverse this and she fell back down 2,000 feet, half a mile. You ever see those videos? There's the mountain goat and then an eagle will come by and knock him off his perch. And then the goat just keeps tumbling and tumbling. Or a skier. Their skis fly off in the air and they do a cartwheel. That should be an Olympic sport. Tammy ragdolled it 2,000 feet. Crack hours now. With all the scary stories thinking he's seeing mittens hanging out of the snow. (laughs) Spend some nights outside with Andy, cowboy camping. Who needs a tent? And he's saying when your ear is to the glacier at night, you can hear her veins pumping the crystal clear water through the ice rivers below. You hear cracks beneath your feet. Scary stuff. They finally get up to base camp, which is at 17,600 feet. There's a few hundred tents pitched there. You got the medical tents, dining halls, which at night turn into dance halls. All you need is two shots of vodka, and you are at sea level drunk. They do a lot of partying down there. The base camp is between these two giant spires, Everest one side, Lost on the other. It's prime avalanche territory. Don't rip a fart too loud in the middle of the night. Even at base camp at this height, higher than anything we have in America, they say... In direct sunlight, it's warm enough for a t-shirt. But at night, if you go out for a pee, your urine stream will freeze back up your urethra. This is when you get a really good feel for Hall and Fisher. Again, Hall, the military time hardo. The British, he no man left behind Ernest Shackleton. And then Fisher, the fun guy, he's got the long hair. It's Jake Gyllenhaal in the movie hooking up with snow bunnies. They wear these like steampunk glasses on the mountain. The goggles weren't as good in the 90s and it blocks out the sides. I almost went blind at Park City, Utah. Hall and Fisher at base camp, they're going too much traffic is happening for this time of the year. We're going to have to team up (laughs) because the Japanese team has this saying, Above 8,000 feet, there is no morality. Even before that, (laughs) not very much honor in that catchphrase. Before base camp, the Japanese were using Fisher's ladders that he set up. You're supposed to do your own at the beginning of the season. They're not even paying. Fisher also had a couple stories about climbing with a buddy who accidentally hit his own calf with his ice pick and they weren't able to take it out, otherwise he would have bled out. So this chunk of calf, a perfect cylinder, came out. Who's to know if they cooked it and ate it? (laughs) No morality above 8,000 feet. Try some cannibalism. Let's go along to chapter 3. Camp 1. They will make it to. Krakauer prefaces all of his chapters in every book with some sort of a survival quote. This one went, Danger can serve to sharpen awareness, focus, and control. He's pointing out here at Camp 1, the people who haven't acknowledged that they are in a life-or-death situation, they're being willfully ignorant and optimistic. 
base camp still has medicine, tools, some sort of modern stuff. When you get up to Camp 1, you are 100 miles from the nearest trailhead even. You are using field medicine, splinting every 2,000 feet of elevation from the 17K. You're losing appetite, obviously. You need to supplement with oxygen. There was a Canadian on board. He's one of these hype beasts. He had supreme boots that he didn't break in before the hike. So his toes are mangled. By Camp 1, he had a couple broken piggies. The hike from base camp to Camp 1 is some of the most otherworldly territory Krakauer has ever been in. You're going through ice caves that are crystal blue. There are rivers you could just dump your Nalgene into, freshest water on Earth. There's no bacteria up there. The way you die is just by your body failing you from lack of oxygen. It's like being on a whippets for three days straight. <laughs> Krakauer compared it to being in the middle of your freezer. You're like the old stale Eggo waffle in the back that nobody will touch. You're looking at the ice cube maker. You don't know if one of these avalanches are going to frostbite your nooks and crannies. Rob Hall makes a little speech for them at Camp 1 because he's watching them come up one by one getting a feel of everybody's pace speech was just like we're all gonna make it you know it's all in your heart it's not about your body beck already tore a leg muscle at that point yeah mister i go to the gym six days a week (laughs) you see those hippies climbing they found out ways to strengthen their tendons climbing from camp one to two even he said you're on your toes most of the time you're working muscles that don't even matter if you got bulk Yasuko was blazing the trail, doing really well. John Krakauer's tentmate Andy had to take codeine, put an anti-vomit strip under his tongue a few nights. He was just barely hanging on. Krakauer called home. They had a satellite phone that cost 25 bucks a minute. You don't really know who took artistic licensing from who in the movie. Hall is calling home. Much more important, he just impregnated his wife. He's going, name the baby after me. Sarah Hall Fisher lives to this day. Camp One, they spend a few nights here going now up to the death zone. 25,000 back down to 19,000. You really just got to get acclimated at this height. There's another story to close out the chapter in 1933. An American guy, Wilson, took his Cessna up to the Himalayas and he decided to crash his plane on it as close to the summit that he could get. Only made it 19,000 and a half feet, so around Camp One, they're telling ghost stories, you'll see Wilson wandering around. They found his body 20 years later in 1954, perfectly conserved human sickle down in a ravine. For all we know, there could be. <laughs> feral humans a tribe of yetis down at the bottom of these crevices how creepy is that 20 years later you're finding bodies Krakauer did say that he ran into his first vacuum sealed bag between camp one and two at least on mount everest every body you pass was that of a highly motivated person chapter four camp two is when they're gonna make their home there at this height smoking It is impossible. Most food that you try to swallow will come back up. You pick up your Siddhar here, which is a mega Sherpa. (laughs) Theirs was a guy named Eng. 
it was rumored that he was born at 15,000 feet. Everybody thinks he was made for this. The tone that Krakauer is giving is that Hall actually has more experience, more summits than Eng. But Eng has the skin tone that makes all the white people feel safe. Krakauer would witness Eng put handfuls of snow underneath his baseball cap just to stay warm. Something nobody else was doing. He really was a snow monkey. 21,300 feet is Camp 2 with 120 tents. So you could go from Camp 2 to the summit, even Camp 1 to Camp 3 in the same day. But you will get the bends. You know what divers get from the change of air pressure? You're getting bodied by barometrics up there. The guy Fisher, he was going 1 to 3 to bring dexamethasone to all these dying people because there wasn't the infrastructure. You didn't just be able to fly a drone up Fisher basically had carbonated blood. <laughs> the up and downs he was doing, he was spicier than a McDonald's Sprite. Rumors start going around at Camp 2 that there was a Sidar that died up there. Fisher, for as much of a badass as he tries to be, he does have some leadership qualities. He puts all those rumors to rest. And one of the guys in Fisher's group, he only had about a dozen, was the Russian Borkiv. One of the real heroes of the story. <laughs> and he just keeps pulling bottles of vodka out of nowhere. Keeps the party alive. The spirit's high morale. Very important. John read a story in that 1980s era about a guy who wandered off to pee in the middle of the night at Camp 2 and was found dead with his dick in his hand. They're going to go for Camp 3 the next day. Neither John or his tent mate has gotten a full night of sleep. He'll wake up at 4 a.m. gasping for air. Doug... Beck's roommate, the guy with the lung infection, he woke up one night with a frozen larynx, so they had him drink a bunch of hot tea, cutting-edge medical technology. Up on the lost face, the next thing they're going to traverse, sometimes it has a zero wind chill. Even ride a motorcycle when it's cold snowing out, it feels like you're swallowing ice shards every single breath. Can't even imagine this. Chapter 5, Camp 3. They're on the ice wall for three hours trying to make it to Camp 3. Krakauer is saying above 20,000 feet, you're taking two breaths for every step that you take. Some weird Vipassana, you're doing the breath of fire yoga up there. It makes it over. You're probably hallucinating too. Hypothermia makes you do that. Hypothermia makes some people strip down naked and run out. Imagine running into a naked guy on Mount Everest. <laughs> I bet you've never seen the Mount Everest streaker who hides from homos. <laughs> you gotta have these scary stories, though. The balance, that puts some pep in your step as well. The Russian guy had a really good saying here going from Camp 2 to 3. Beck and Doug were fighting, and he's like... Stop it. The competition isn't between you guys. There's more than enough of a challenge between you and the mountain. It's going to take everything that you have to push yourself to the top. Are both of those guys going to make it? Camp 3 they're up at, over the lost face, slow and steady. There's not even enough room for Sherpas here, so they would go down to Camp 2 in the middle of the day. You do your own cooking at this point. And every single breath that you take above Camp 3 has to be through the oxygen mask. 
I know everybody's a hero nowadays or whatever. <laughs> I got really claustrophobic as a kid. Me and my friends would play this game when there was this container that was supposed to have a garden hose in it. So, of course, we would go inside of it and see how long you could live inside this coffin. And as soon as your friend's asking to get out, that's when you sit on top of it. <laughs> One time I leg pressed 200 pounds of toddler off of me. Claustrophobia is the real deal. Crack hour is saying you will experience a new level of enclosed feeling being inside your coat for three days. During the middle of the night, John saw one of the Japanese teams getting up to puke consistently. Critical race theory. <laughs> the Asian people were getting hape, high altitude, pulmonary enema. Your lungs fill with water. And the only way to fix it is to get down to a human altitude as soon as possible saw one guy throwing up blood witnessed one man with purple lips he had the worst hypothermia ever they had to bring him down on a stretcher to camp too wasn't even sure if this guy made it alive you do these hikes yourself like i've been way over my head i'm saying for all the park rangers listening i definitely clip in when i go up green mountain if you're seeing dead people on the way up that's more than enough to turn you around. <laughs> you have to have an unbreakable spirit if you really want to say you climb this thing. They did get a radio up a couple days later. The guy Chen died. They solidify the teammate here that Fisher and Hall are going to try to summit together. And they're setting up for it. Hall has his trademark 2 o'clock turnaround time. Anything beyond that. We'll see if they hold on to that idea. Fisher and Hall wake up their individual teams at 3 a.m. the night before. Go outside here at high altitude. You have a headache every day as a hangover. But you see glistening the summit under the stars. You start your snail's pace. Chapter 6, Summit. They're racing the clock at this point. You are in the death zone. He says your tank uses about two liters of air per minute. How highly pressurized are those things? Go <laughs> start sniping air tanks at the top of Everest. Hall chose Eng to be his right-hand man, put him in charge of the extra oxygen tanks you have to stow on your way back down from the summit. At 11.30, one of the earlier British teams were the first to summit for the day, and there is a log jam on the Hillary Step. Hillary, <laughs> they're doing adrenochrome up there, 27,000 feet on the balcony, it's called. You are definitely on adrenaline here. They didn't have fixed clips, so they had to have Eng go out across. They had him <laughs> zero safety precautions for that guy. He rigs the ropes the day of. Really no infrastructure here in the 90s. John Krakauer. He's not stopping to hold anybody's hand here. He goes at 12.30, makes it up the summit ridge where you actually have to wench yourself up that little hand tool. You know how the military repels? You have to one by one, like a gym class rope climb. Still down is more dangerous than back up. Crack hour up there at 1 p.m. Sees a little lump of prayer flags. He adds... One of the flags that a local gave to him during a prayer ceremony. It's disgusting nowadays if you look at the 
mass of flags, there is a trash pile on top of the highest mountain. This is how humans treat our planet. It's disgusting nowadays. Krakauer again only snapped four pictures up there. Stretched out the outside banner for the magazine article he's writing. Starts hiking down and sees Andy on the Hillary step. And he's like, I'm not going to make it up by 2 o'clock. They hike down together. And he runs into Beck. Beck has only made it about 500 meters from Camp 3. And he's saying, I'm experiencing some really bad snow blindness. He didn't care to tell Hall that he had some sort of eye surgery a couple years prior. It's coming to bite him in the butt. Krakauer, again, he saw that storm coming, so he just jetted off there. We're around 2.30 p.m. Yasuko makes it to the summit along with the Russian. Russian guy lets out some... Duh! At the top, a manly scream. Yasuko, arigato, arigato, thank you, thank you. And uh, the Russian guy is like, your country is so proud of you. They wait up there for Hall. Hall is climbing up way behind schedule with Doug, the guy who he is now paying an all-expensive time because he's saying, I don't want to see you on this mountain face for a third time. He's going to make it to the top with this guy, Doug, for the children. Hour passes where Borkiv and Yasuko are chilling on top. <laughs> this guy, Mike, starts calling over to uh, Hall's walkie-talkie. He's like, I'm on the West Ridge right now. Are you even looking behind you? There is the blackest cloud ever. Hall is getting walkie-talkied up now from base camp. He has a weather girl down there coordinating the trip. And she's like... Don't tell me you're still up there. The classic, I'm not turning back around until we make it. He's like, shut up with this weather report. Meteorology is good 50% of the time at best. He says this mountain makes its own weather. Especially after 2 p.m. Thing turns into God's seat. Krakauer spent a little too long. He sent in a storm down their way. The weather is picking up to the point where there is a fresh six inches every 15 minutes and it blows around so it's an ever-changing landscape. Crack hour is 100 meters from Camp 3. He's saying, I would not have made it back to the camp if I hadn't left at the time that I did. Back at the summit, we're checking in with Hall who hears a giant boom. They look up expecting to see an avalanche just a few feet above and it's thunder, that black cloud immediately rises up and swallows them. Yasuko, Borkiv are back down quarter mile or so ahead. They're going to try to get Beck down to safety. Perfect timing for Krakauer. His oxygen tank ran out. He was really trashing how there's no safety. It is a free-for-all at a certain height. You pay them to get you up. You got to get yourself back down. Chapter 7. Summit. Plummet. This guy, Beetleman. One of the fellas from Fisher's team, Beetleman, made it back to the camp. Krakauer went to see what was up. He's saying there's at least 12 people stranded up on the mountain right now. Wasn't until 5 p.m. that they were able to relay six canisters of oxygen a little bit up the incline no one winds up seeing it <laughs> they're radioing down to base camp 
Fisher is having a breakout of Antobla histolica. He has a permanent GI parasite. This guy's a world explorer. He drank some Jardia water down in Patagonia. It's that soda water blood of his. <laughs> this story, I'm sorry guys, it doesn't have a happy ending. It's 20 years old. Fisher was partying at base camp every night. He is telling uh, Hall, I will meet you guys down there. I have to wait to see if anybody from my team comes up anymore. Fisher winds up dying. Fisher knew he wanted the mountain to kill him. It seemed like he died in a fetal position in the womb of the mountain. Everest always gets the last word. Doug and Hall are hanging on by a thread. Doug is passed out. He's calling everybody he can to try to get an oxygen tank passed up. It is the middle of the storm. Nobody's doing a dang thing. And Hall is just refusing to leave Doug behind. So they wind up falling asleep for the night together. I'm telling you, the gear is pretty good in the 90s. Your parka can insulate you for a night. After that, though, if you're not getting up and trying to circulate, you're asking for hypothermia. Doug, actually, before the end of the night, doesn't clip into the Hillary step where they were hanging out. And he just wobbles off. 7,000 foot drop hall left there alone the kids aren't going to get to see the pictures that he made it to the top with at least the average Joe died on top another guy shooting makes it back and he's like crack hour get off your lazy ass what the hell are you doing writing in your little journal right now crack hour knows <laughs> he's got a story brewing shooting chewing him out Borkiv, the Russian back at this point, was saying, you can't blame Krakauer. Look at this feeble little man. He's not the hero of this story. If he doesn't save every bit of energy he has, he's not going to be able to get himself down. He's going to be a danger to someone else then. Sometimes conservation is the way to go. Like, Hall should have just left Doug. What, both of us are supposed to die? On the same point, why does John not feel guilty at all for letting Hall die in the end Russian guys saying every breath counts when you're at this height like every calorie counts in survival situations legit you don't even have air up there winds up going out in the snow and Krakauer does get out of his tent for a little bit and bangs a pot and pan to try to be a beacon Borkiv heads over east furthest you can away from the peak Beck Yasuko and two other people overshot camp three they were looking over a cliff over by the lost face they were totally off the mark Borkiv was able to bring Yasuko's body back she is lifeless at the time they try to warm her up he goes back out there for Beck and Beck certainly suffering from hypothermia he stretches both arms outwards He's calling out his wife's name and then just lays back. He's like, leave me, Daisy. The Russian guy might be some Cold War angst, but he leaves Beck for dead. And then Borkiv brings two people back to camp. Yusuko does wind up dying in the end. Beck pronounced dead. Borkiv still the biggest hero. Basically the end of the night. 6 a.m. John is shaken awake. Andy, not in the tent. He's just out there looking for people. 
Great scare. Not like we don't have enough of that right now, crack hour. Base camp does get a radio up to Hall, who is hanging on for dear life. They're able to get his wife on the sat phone, which they link up to the walkie-talkie, and he's able to say his final goodbyes. Camp 3, they're going to need every bit of strength to try to get some of these corpses back to 2 for help. Visibility is now perfect. There's some, like, metaphysical shit going on. It's like when Hall's spirit left his body, the storm broke for a minute, and it gets worse again. It sucks, though, when you lose a leader like that. It's like everybody felt it. (laughs) Moment of silence. John takes a look over at the west wall, sees some crampon tracks. Those are the knives you put on the bottom of your... When I go to karate practice, I like to wear metal baseball cleats. You could probably climb Mount Everest in those. Yasuko, no heart rate. It's a really drowsy morning. The storm picks back up, and they see what looks like a zombie coming through the mist. It has a completely black face. The fingers are all crooked and black, and it is Beck. That's right. Nobody's going to crush Texas. He's got the big iron on his hip. <laughs> Beck, he stumbles back into camp, still muttering his wife's name. They dunk his hands into hot water, try to save it. His uh, hands get amputated in the end. He loses his nose as well. But they put him in this pretty cool sleeping bag when they get down to Camp 2, and it stabilizes him. It mimics air pressure at sea level. Tiny bounce house you're in. They have him jacked up on dexamethasone. Camp 3, they start making their way down. John Krakauer does actually take a tiny bit of a leadership position here. I mean, it's a vacuum at that point. He goes over to the IMAX team and is like, please, just a tank of oxygen. Give us some top ramen. The IMAX team's like, we got $5.5 million worth of footage on us. <laughs> We're out. Ditched. Again, nobody's... When you're at height, it's beyond good and evil. There is no ethics midday they get down to camp two it's a civil war hospital chapter eight descent the mess tent has completely been turned into that hospital john is just hearing yells and screams of people getting their fingers chopped off (laughs) this is where that guy cheng died a couple days ago and there's a japanese guy from that team who has even worse frostbite than beck beck is probably the biggest story here in Chapter 8. His wife spends another 50k calling every helicopter agency in Nepal, and she finds a guy that'll fly to base camp. But then they have to strip the bird down to its bones. No co-pilot to get it above 20,000 feet. They say it's the first time it was tried on the mountain. At Camp 2, Krakauer was marking out a red X in Kool-Aid for a landing zone. They throw Beck's lifeless body in there pilot nose dives down the mountain and he is evacuated like i said beck will live unfortunately it probably should have been hall or borkiv getting a <laughs> purple heart crack hours said that everybody down at base camp held a funeral everybody in hall's team had a helicopter back to the garda hotel bought it full circle it's a perfect adventure story Except for unlike the Shackleton one, the hero dies here. Crack hour. 
is not the hero he's trying to say here. I cried my entire flight back to the United States. Yeah, yeah, buddy. You're sitting on a golden egg. You got a bestseller in your backpack, homie. It's all right. <laughs> he's 25 pounds lighter than when he left. He's enjoying every meal, every bite that much more. I think I mentioned it before, but I've been watching that show alone on the History Channel. It's um the most raw human interaction with nature that they're ever going to capture on camera. Highly suggest it. They have similar takeaways from Crack Hour. Soon as he's back in the U.S. making calls to his publishers, everybody's doing press. Like, you go back, look up videos of Borkiv, who did live. Beck, still alive. They suffered 12 casuals total. Only 3% of those who die on the mountain every single year. Unfortunately, that's basically the end. <laughs> I really suggest the movie as well. That's pure Hollywood magic. Stop using it for 13 reasons why. This is the proper message here. And I hope we shared today something about perseverance and endurance. If you don't push yourself or put yourself in these situations outside of your comfort zone, you're never going to know what you're made of. Into Thin Air, John Krakauer, a fast food edition of Nick's Nonfiction. But for your media diet, this has so much damn nutrition. Make sure you're checking out Instagram, search the niche on YouTube, or at Harry Shit. You know the emblem. Patreon, at the niche exclusive books two camera rants <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen just kicking off june we have one hell of a month ahead it is going to be a battle of ideologies we have next week the communist manifesto we're going to hashtag destroy a philosophy for the first time i'm bringing up free markets versus government monopolies you know what it's about Karl Marx, his butt buddy Engel, are trying to convince you there is no such thing as I. We are all part of the collective, comrade. Marx, I will do an even review. He was one for gun ownership. <laughs> it's going to be real fun because the week after that, we have an ode to capitalism. That one's going to be a Patreon exclusive because it is written by number 45, he who shall not be named. <laughs> fun couple weeks ahead thank you guys for sharing into thin air my name is nick munez see you guys next week later <laughs>